Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are going to continue our discussion about the seerah, which is the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we are currently on seerah episode number 43. Before we begin, a quick recap of the last episode. In the last episode, we continued the discussion of some of the delegations coming to Medina. One of these delegations that came that we spoke about was the delegation of Banu Tamim. When they arrived at Medina, they called for the prophet. They called him out while he was inside of his apartment, which was, well, I shouldn't say apartment, he was inside of his, his home, which was, one of, which was one of the inner apartments of the masjid in Medina, what we now call uh, Masjid al-Nabi, or the Mosque of the Prophet. They call for the Prophet to come out to meet them. Later on, Abu Bakr and Omar, they argued about who should be the governor of Banu Tamim. And these two events, Banu Tamim calling out for the Prophet, and Abu Bakr and Omar arguing, they led to the revelation of parts of Surah Al-Hujurat. We also discussed the conversion of several of the Himyarite kings in Yemen, and we discussed very briefly the difference between the Himyarites and the Mudharites, uh, two large divisions of Arabs. And we also spoke how spoke about how Prophet Muhammad sent Mu'ad ibn Jabal down to Yemen to, to teach them about Islam. We also discussed in the last episode the Hajj that took place in Dhul Hijjah 9AH. This was led by Abu Bakr. And we mentioned how the first 40 verses of Surah Tawbah were revealed just after Abu Bakr had left for the Hajj. And these verses were later on announced during the actual Hajj rites. And they gave notice to the remaining pagans in Mecca that they had to make a decision. They either had to convert to Islam or leave the area. And then we wrapped up the episode with some concluding events of the year. That was 9AH, nine years after the Hijrah. And so now we move on to 10AH, the 10th year after the Hijrah. And we are continuing to to talk about delegations. Much of the events that took place this year, at least those events that were significant enough to be a part of Tariq Tabari, most of the events were mostly discussing the delegates that continue to come to Medina and the continued growth of the Muslim domain. We could say Muslim empire, or Islamic empire, the Muslim caliphate. Can't really say caliphate, really, because caliph means successor, and the prophet was still alive at this time. So I don't think caliphate is a good is a good word but perhaps domain empire not really kingdom i don't think that's appropriate either domain realm i don't know how else you want to put it but nonetheless islam and muslim controlled areas continue to grow there were a few military expeditions but the prophet did not take did not take part in any of them. He was, as we mentioned in the last episode, he was a, really a statesman by now. He had to care for this growing community. So most of these expeditions, actually, they were really shows of force, really just the Muslims consolidating their hold in certain areas. In most part, in most cases where these expeditions did go out, there were actually very little fighting during this period. The Muslim army and the Muslim forces were fairly strong right now. 
and there wasn't much resistance among the Arabs of the Arabian Peninsula. When the uh, Muslim armies arrived in whatever region they were going to, in most cases, the uh, village or clan that they encountered quickly submitted without a fight. And so with that, I don't believe there's much reason to discuss them in, in detail as they generally have very little significance or relevance in the overall story. Same thing with the various delegations coming through. The vast majority of them are just repeats of what we discussed so far. Uh, delegation will come in, they pledge allegiance, prophet give them a gift, teach them a little bit about Islam, and they head back home. And that just continued over and over and over again. There was one delegation where that same process happened, but there's a slight difference in it, though. This was the delegation of Banu Hanifa. Banu Hanifa was a large tribe from Central Arabia in a region known as the Najd. In this particular region, this delegation was from this region within the Najd was called Yamama. And you probably know where I'm getting from, where I'm, what I'm getting to. The most important thing about this delegation from Banu Hanifa, from Yamama, within the Najd of Central Arabia, the most important thing about this delegation is that the man that we would know as Musaylama al-Kadhab was a part of this de delegation. Now, Musaylama al-Kadhab, his real name was Maslama ibn Habib. Musaylama is the shortened form of his real name, Maslama. So they called him Maslama for short. I'm sorry, they called him Musaylama for short. Similar to Omer is the shortened form of Omar. Really, shortened form is not really the good way of putting it. Omer is like the 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 young man, a little boy version of the name Omar. Musaylama is the is the little boy version of Maslama. Not really anything bad or necessarily derogative. It's just kind of like Timmy and Tom, you know, or Timmy and Timothy. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. How Timmy is a diminutive or a shortened form or little boy version of the word Timothy. It's not necessarily anything bad or Billy and Bill kind of like that. So continuing, continuing on when the delegation of Banu Hanifa came, there are basically two stories regarding Musaylama's involvement in his brief time in Medina during this period, period that the delegation was in Medina. One story, which is the one that I don't really believe is true, is that Musaylama entered the mosque with the other delegates from Banu Hanifa, but he was completely veiled. And when he approached the prophet, he asked the prophet for a gift. And this was because the prophet often gave gifts to the delegates who visited who visited him. At the time, the prophet was holding like a palm frond. Most likely he was using this to either fan himself or to swat away bugs. But when Musaylama asked him for this gift, he asked him for a gift, even though the prophet generally did give gifts to the delegates that came to visit him, he said that he wouldn't even give Musaylama the palm frond that the palm frond that he was holding. I don't necessarily believe the story is true. The more accurate story, the one I hear more frequently, is that uh, Musaylama actually never entered the mosque. He never stepped foot inside the Prophet's mosque. When the delegation from Banu Hanifa came, Musaylama waited outside with the baggage. He was still a young man, a very young man, in fact, while the older men were speaking with the prophet inside the mosque. 
After the delegates had accepted Islam, the prophet then gave them a gift and he instructed them that every person within the delegation should get an equal share. And he seemed to know, even though the delegates hadn't told him, he seemed to know that there was still one more person waiting outside and this person happened to be Musaylama. And so the prophet said, basically indicating that Musaylama should also get a an equal portion of the gift that he gave them, saying that his position of guarding your property is no less important than yours. Essentially saying that just because you leave him outside to watch your bags, he still has just as an important a role in your delegation as the rest of you guys who came in here and talked with me. So that was basically what the prophet was saying. So when the delegates left, when they left the master, they gave Musaylama his portion of the gift and they told him what the prophet has said about him. And this seemed to fascinate Musaylama. He seemed to be enamored by this speech from the prophet. And he kept repeating it over and over and over. So by the time they returned to Yamama, he was saying he had blown up this phrase that the prophet has said that he's no less important than the rest of the delegation. He had he had enlarged this phrase that the prophet has said to a point where he was saying that the prophet had made him his partner. He was now in league with the same with in, he was now in league with the prophet. Mosalama was now saying that he and the prophet were on the same level. This is how he interpreted the prophet's statement in his own, in his own head. And over time, Musaylama was would take this delusion even further. So that's the only delegation we're really going to talk about in this episode. What we will go move on to is the farewell pil- pilgrimage, and we won't spend too much time on this either. The Prophet وسلم, he left Medina to make the Hajj on the 25th of the Qa'ada in the 10 AH. Remember, we are in the 10th year of the Hijrah. And the Qa'ada is the 11th month of the year. We pretty much just sped right through the 10th year. Like I said, most of it was, most of the 10th year of the Hijrah was just a bunch of delegations and a few small expeditions. So the um, farewell pilgrimage is probably the most important thing. The thing is that I already covered the farewell pilgrimage. I talked about it in season two of the Islamic History Podcast, episode one. It was one of my first episodes in the new format I currently use. So if you want to hear the details of the farewell pilgrimage, the speech the prophet made and the number of people that went with him and all that, so forth and so on, go to Islamic History Podcast and listen to season two episode one it is currently available i just listened to it a few days ago myself that was in preparation for this episode but there are some aspects of that of that pilgrimage that we did not cover in that episode from 2015 one thing that i want to cover a few two things i want to cover just because they're important for um thick and for understanding the development of islam two things i didn't really cover one was that Aisha, the prophet's wife, she accompanied him on this journey, on the pilgrimage, and she got her monthly period while they were on their way to the Hajj. And she was concerned that she wouldn't be able to perform the rites, but the prophet told her to continue the Hajj just as she could not circumambulate the Kaaba. One important thing, and that is an important part of Islamic fiqh or Islamic law. And the second thing which is really a general statement. Most of the rites of Hajj came from 
this pilgrimage. Most of what we know about the rites of Hajj in today's Islam, most of them came from the Prophet's farewell pilgrimage. That's really all there really is to say about the farewell pilgrimage. Once again, season two, episode one goes into more detail if you want to hear the whole thing. More important were the political aspects of the Muslim domain, the Muslim empire, the political things that were going on. See, after the Prophet returned from the Hajj, the first signs of apostasy were beginning to show in the Muslim realm. See, after the Prophet returned from the Hajj, he fell sick. And this was towards the end of Muharram, 11 AH. And Muharram is the first month of the year. So he made Hajj in Nadhul Hijjah the last month of 10 AH. And he fell sick on his return from the Hajj in Muharram, the first month of 11 AH. So the very next month. And as he got sick and his sick, he did not recover from his sickness people began to get worried and word began to spread. And as word began to spread, some of the first apostates began to poke their heads up out of the dirt. We're going to talk about those guys in a little bit more detail now. I may have covered this. I'm pretty sure I covered most of them during the second season of the Islamic History podcast, but I I think I just mentioned their names, but I think there's there's some detail I didn't really go over. I mostly went uh, during that period. I mostly went about it from the Muslim perspective, mostly just um, Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Bakr planning their de- their offense against these rebels or these apostates. Some of them were rebels, some of them were were true apostates. But these three um, false prophets that we're about to mention right now, these were definitely apostates. There's no doubt about that. But some of the people that we lump into the War of the Apostates, many of them were really just rebels. They did, they did not leave Islam. They just didn't want to give Abu Bakr the zakat. But once again, that's for the next, that's for season two. Go back and listen to that if there's anything you want to get some details on. The first false prophet that popped his head up was a man named Al-Aswad ibn Ka'ab al-Ansi. He was a fortune teller and a juggler from Yemen, and he claimed to be a prophet. He had also participated in the Battle of the Trench, I believe. Anyhow, he claimed prophethood, and then he joined up with the Madhij tribe of Yemen, and together they attacked Najran. And Najran is right along the border between southern Saudi Arabia and northern Yemen. So they attacked this region, they attacked Najran and forced the Prophet's representatives to flee. And then Al-Aswad al-Ansi, he took over the uh, this region, Najran. From there, Aswad al-Ansi, he also attacked and then occupied Sana'a, which is currently the capital of Yemen and has always been the capital of Yemen and was also the largest city in Yemen. Once again, Al-Aswad al-Ansi, he was able to force the Prophet's representatives out and he took out and he took over for himself. And so he was able to build himself up a nice little foothold in southern Arabia, uh, in between what's now considered Najran in southern Saudi Arabia and Sana'a, which is now part of northern Yemen, so to speak. And so... The, there were still, however, many Muslims within this region who were loyal to the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
they had to flee. And so they left with the prophet's representatives and they relocated to southern Yemen near Aden, uh, which is currently sometimes people pronounce it Aden, but in Arabic it's pronounced Aden, which is in southern Yemen. So many of them relocated to that region of Yemen to try to organize a comeback. Eventually, the prophet found out about it back in Medina, but he was undergoing his sickness by, by at this time. But he still was able to organize some sort of um, plan to take back this territory. So he began sending what, well, Tariq Atabari labels them as messengers. I'm going to call them what they really were, spies and operatives. The prophet sent operatives down into this, territo- this territory that Al-Aswad al-Ansi had taken over. And so these operatives from the prophet, they worked with those Yemeni Muslims down in Aden who were still loyal to the prophet. They all joined forces and they began fighting against Al-Aswad al-Ansi. In addition to that, the prophet also encouraged uh, some of the Persian, the Muslim Persians living in this region to join in on this battle and this fight against Al-Aswad al-Ansi. And to explain the Persians very, very briefly, Yemen, before it became part of the Muslim domain, it had been a part of the Persian Empire until very, very recently, just a few years before. In fact, we spoke about this when we discussed the episode on the prophet's emissaries, his envoys to several parts of the um, of the region, of the Middle Eastern region. This was in Sido episode number 30. We discussed how the Persian emperor sent some of his own people from Yemen to go and um, consider or plan an attack against Medina. That didn't work out because those people wound up converting to Islam And that started the process of bringing Yemen into the Muslims' domain. Anyway, with the Prophet's operatives, those forces, those Yemeni Muslims who were loyal, who remained loyal to the Prophet, as well as the Persian Muslims who were stationed in Yemen, between all of them, they were able to defeat Aswad al-Ansi's forces, and he was killed during during, uh, the battle. And this, he was finally killed just a few days before the prophet died. However, many of those who were loyal to him, they continued to fight even after Al-Aswad al-Ansi, their so-called prophet, had died. For whatever reason, the rebellion didn't die with him. So in reality, even though Al-Aswad al-Ansi was killed before the prophet died, the actual rebellion wasn't completely put down until after his death during the reign of Abu Bakr. And I'm not sure if it was done by Khalid ibn Walid. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't done by, they weren't defeated by Khalid ibn Walid. I know we discussed in season two. Um, go back and listen to it. I can't remember who actually defeated them. Khalid ibn Walid was mostly going north towards Persia. So there's one false prophet. The next one was Musaylama himself. Musaylama al-Kadhab, we mentioned how his delusion from the Prophet's statement kept floundering around in his mind. He kept making it bigger and bigger and bigger until finally he began to say that he was also a prophet. He went from saying that he and the Prophet uh, were partners to saying that he was actually a prophet himself. And he began to recite these rhyming verses Kind of, kind of like what the Quran was, or like he tried to say that it was something like the Quran, and he also claimed that these rhyming verses that he recited were coming from Allah. So Musaylama, he was really feeling himself right now. He sent a letter to Prophet Muhammad, 
asking Prophet Muhammad to share this empire, this Muslim empire, this Muslim nation. And he accused the Prophet, and for this how shows how audacious Musaylam al-Kadhab was, he accused the Prophet of being unjust for not sharing it because Musaylam really believed that he was the Prophet's partner, that they were both prophets. So in this letter that Musaylam sent to Prophet Muhammad, Musaylam addressed both himself and Prophet Muhammad as messengers of Allah. And so when the Prophet responded, he responded by saying, basically, I'm going to try and paraphrase what happened. Musaylamah, Musaylamah's letter said, from Musaylamah, the messenger of Allah, to Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, so forth and so on. Then he went on and made his demands. The Prophet, وسلم, the real Prophet, he responded by saying, from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, to Musaylamah al-Kadhab, Musaylamah the liar. And this is where the phrase Musaylam al-Kadhab originated, from this letter where the Prophet referred to him as Musaylamah the liar. And so the Prophet didn't actually take any action against Musaylamah at that time. Most likely he was dealing with other things, his own health for one thing, as well as the rebellion in Yemen. But once again, it's all discussed in season two. The third and final prophet to come up during the uh, sorry, false prophet, the fi- third and final false prophet to pop up during the prophet's lifetime. There was another one, a prophetess, a, fe- a false female prophetess, a woman. But that, will ha- that would happen after the prophet died. But the third false prophet to pop up during the prophet's lifetime was a man named Tuleyha al-Asadi. He was a chieftain of the Assad clan, which is in Central Arabia, where they were located in Central Arabia. And he claimed to be a prophet just a little bit after Al-Aswad al-Ansi down in Yemen and Musaylam al-Kadhab in, in um, the Najd in Yamama. Just a little bit after them, Tuleyh al-Asadi, he got the idea to call himself a prophet as well. And most of his tribe and most of the tribes and clans in the region, in this part of Central Arabia, they followed him. And so to Lehal al-Asadi, he sent his brother to the prophet to offer him peace and, and asking the prophet to recognize his authority. The prophet was understandably upset. The prophet cursed the uh, the messenger from Tuleyha al-Asadi, stating, may God destroy you. And the prophet said something along the lines, or at least, I'm not sure if it's either Tuleyha al-Asadi's messenger or Musaylam al-Kadhab's messenger. It's one or the other. I think it was Musaylam al-Kadhab. He said that if it wasn't for the fact that it was wrong to kill the messengers, I would have your head chopped off because this person had basically committed treason. But anyway, so those are the three false prophets, and all of them came up during the last days of Prophet Muhammad, and they all showed their heads, they all reared their heads when they heard the Prophet was sick, and it became evident that this sickness was a serious sickness. These weren't the only problems that the Muslims were dealing with. Word had once again reached the Prophet again of trouble to the north near Jordan. The, uh, there was word coming down that the Byzantine army and some of its Arab affiliates in the region were encroaching on territory that was supposed to be under Muslim protection. And so the prophet, he designated Usama ibn Zaid to lead an expedition to Jordan and take care of this uh, menace that was, that was starting up in the, in the northern parts of Arabia. 
However, now Osama ibn Zayd, he was a son of Zayd ibn Haditha, who was a former adopted son of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. However, many people criticized the Prophet's decision to choose Osama ibn Zayd to lead this expedition. Many people complained that Osama was very young. He was only about 17 years old at this time, and many people complained that he was just too young to be leading men two or three times his age. On top of that, Usama was also the son of a slave, Zayd ibn Haditha, even though the prophet had freedom, even though Zayd ibn Haditha, ibn Haditha was born free, for a brief period of time he was captured and taken as a slave, and because of that, he was considered a lower class of human, I guess, by some of the the um, the uneducated people of Medina, the ignoble or unintelligent people of Medina, maybe unenlightened is a better, is a better word. The unen, some of the unenlightened people of Medina still considered him to be less human because he had been a former slave. And this was, once again, because Zayd ibn Haditha, who had been killed during the Battle of Mu'ta, which is in Sita episode number 33, Zayd ibn Haditha spent a very brief time as a slave. Anyway, the prophet was very upset about this, and when he heard these criticisms, he, even though he was still sick, he went out and gave a speech, and he directed this speech at these critics. He said that if they criticize Osama, they criticize his father before him. He said Osama ibn Zayd was more than capable of leading the army, just like his father was more than capable of leading the army. And he ordered the army to leave immediately and continue its march. And this took place on in the month of Safar, which is the second month of the Muslim calendar, Safar 11 AH. Now, despite the Prophet's order and despite the Prophet's support for Usama ibn Zayd, his army did not really get that far. They did leave Medina, but they stopped just outside of Medina as the Prophet's illness worsened and all of these troubles going around the Muslim world, which only included the Arabian Peninsula at this time. All these problems in the Muslim empire were starting to crop up. The army stopped just outside of Medina to try to figure out if the Prophet really wanted them to continue. There is also concern, in addition to the Prophet being seriously ill and seriously sick, there is also concern about two of the, those two false prophets, Musaylam al-Kadhab and Tulayhal al-Asadi. They were relatively close to Medina. There was concern that these two false prophets might unite and attack Medina. And so because of this, Usama's army did not actually leave for Syria and they remained just outside of Medina until after the prophet died and Abu Bakr became the caliph and he ordered Usama ibn Zayd to continue with the mission that the prophet wasallam, has sent him on. And this is once again discussed in the first episode of Season 2 of the Islamic History Podcast. So this will essentially end this episode. In the next episode, we will discuss the Prophet's death. But once again, we discuss the Prophet's death in Season 2, Episode 1. So I probably will not go into much detail, but I will try to go into some details that were not mentioned in that previous episode. 
most of the next episode, however, and my intention is, inshallah, my intention is to kind of recap the prophet's life in a way and to discuss the members of his household. We spoke about many of them briefly, but I want to go into each of them and try to give a, a short little biography of them. And the next episode will probably be the last episode of the Sira podcast, the Sira series. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Actually, I do know what I'm going to do next. I just don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you yet what's going to come next. But I will let you know, inshallah, in the next episode, next week, hopefully. I will let you know what the next series will be after we conclude the Prophet's life. So until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhum.